Welcome to A.T. Stewart and Sons Ministries. I'm your host, A.T. Stewart. I'm glad you've chosen to join us today as we look into the Word of God. So take your Bibles and let's hang out in God's Word for a few moments and see what God would say to us today. We've all heard people say that when they thought they were about to die, that their life flashed before their eyes. Now, when you reach that point in your life, and your life flashes before your eyes, what do you think you're going to see? Have you ever thought about that? When your life flashes before your eyes, what will you see? In our passage today, Paul's life flashes before his eyes. He's in a subterranean dungeon awaiting his execution at the hands of Nero. And he writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4. And Paul gives the images, the pictures, that flash before his eyes. That's interesting what he sees. It's insightful. I hope I can say the same thing about my life on that day that it flashes before my eyes. I hope you can say the same thing that Paul says when that day comes when your life flashes before your eyes. Beginning in verse 6 of chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, Paul says, For I am ready, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. This passage is filled with verbal images, word pictures. Paul gives six pictures that flash before his eyes as he is approaching death, and he looks back. Over his life. Let's consider what these pictures are and see if we will be able to say the same thing about our life. When your life flashes before your eyes, what will you see? First, will you see your life as a sacrifice to God? Paul says in verse 6, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. Now, Paul is reaching back into the Old Testament for this image. It is that drink offering that went with many of the sacrifices. You can read about it over in Numbers 15 if you would like. But what we see there is when God's giving them instructions about the sacrifices that they would put on the altar of fire, that at the conclusion of those sacrifices, they were to take a container of wine, and it depended on the sacrifice how much wine, If you gave a lamb as a sacrifice, you would use a quart of wine. If you gave a ram, you would use a third of a gallon of wine. If you sacrificed a bull, you would use a half a gallon of wine. And after the fire was burning and the animal was placed on the fire, then the one offering the sacrifice would take the wine and he would pour it onto the hot rocks of the fire and it would sizzle and steam And it would rise up, and God said it would be a soothing aroma to him. 
But the picture you have in the pouring out of the wine is the total giving, the total surrender. Paul says his life was an offering, a sacrifice to God. Four years earlier, he picked up this same image when he was in another prison writing to the church at Philippi when he said to them in 2.17, But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. When Paul saw his life, he saw it as a sacrifice to God and to others. Nero may think that he was executing Paul, but Paul said no. He was giving up his life as a sacrifice, an offering to God and to others. Paul lived to serve God and to serve others. He was giving up his life. He was one who was a giver, not a taker. His attitude was, Lord, I'm yours. Surrendered to you. I have poured out my life to you for your service and for the service of others. Is this the way you will see your life when it flashes before your eyes? Will you say, I've lived Jesus to serve you and to serve others. I've not been here to take, but I've been here to give, to serve. My life has been poured out in service to you. Secondly, When your life flashes before your eyes, will you see your coming death as an adventure? Look at what Paul goes on to say in verse 6. And the time of my departure has come. Now that word departure is a rich word in the Greek. It has several connotations and it was used in several ways. All of them were good ways and had good connotations. First, it was used to hoist an anchor and set sail. Paul is looking at his coming death as an adventure. He is going to horse the anchor and set sail into eternity. You remember a couple of years ago, my family and I had the opportunity, because of your graciousness, to go on a cruise. And we took the cruise out of Port Canaveral. On the brochure it said that the ship was going to leave out at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. And you could get there any time between 1 and 4. Well, we got there at around 11.30 or 12. The reason I got there an hour early is because I heard they were serving food. And I didn't want to miss any opportunity to eat. So we got there early and we ate. And we ate. But when 5 o'clock came, I was looking forward to getting out of port. I wanted to get out to the seas, the adventure. I'd never been on a cruise before. never been out on the open seas like that. So when 5 o'clock came, sure enough, you could hear the anchor being hoisted up. And the ship started moving as I was looking out through the dining room window. I thought that should have just been my room number. But anyway, as I was looking out through the dining room window and we were moving out, it was an adventure. I was excited. We were headed out. Paul says when he thinks about his coming death, he says, it's an adventure. It's a cruise into eternity. A second picture. This word was used to take down a tent, to, to break down the camp, and to pick up and to leave. 
It's the idea of loosening the ropes and taking that down the tent and moving on to a new campsite. Paul uses the same imagery again in 2 Corinthians 5 when he talks about our body being like this tent. And when we die, the tent is taken down, but we're given a new perfect tent when we get to heaven. And so Paul saw his death as simply laying down his old body, his old tent, and receiving a new glorified tent in eternity. The third way this word was used was that of loosing a prisoner. A prisoner being set free. Paul was not being executed. Rather, he was being released from his life. He was being released from the pains and and disappointments and the struggles of this life. And he was being set free to a much greater life. And then fourthly, this word was used for the unyoking of an ox that had been working all day and the work was done and the yoke would be taken off and the ox would be set out to the pasture so he could eat and rest. Paul had faithfully served God. Now he was being unyoked and promoted to a higher service in heaven. All these departures have good connotations. Death for the Christian is not to be feared. It is an adventure with Jesus. When your life flashes before your eyes, will you see your coming death as an adventure? It will be the ultimate cruise as you sail into eternity. It will be a cruise where every night will be dinner with the captain. It will be great. It will be an adventure. Thirdly, when your life flashes before your eyes, will you see your Christian service as a wrestling match? Paul says in verse 7, I fought the good fight. I hope that doesn't surprise you. That your Christian service should be seen as a wrestling match, as a boxing bout. God never promised us a rose garden in this life. In fact, what He promised us was a wrestling match. And in Tense time of struggling. The Greek word is the word agon. Now, you can figure out the English word we get from that word, agony. It's an intense struggle. It's a contest. Paul saw his ministry as a wrestling match, as a boxing bout, with the idea of great exertion of energy against a very powerful foe. I don't know if you've ever wrestled. But there are not many activities more demanding of you physically than wrestling. Now, I've only wrestled one time, and that was enough for me to figure this truth out. It's when I was in college. And you know how college guys are, all pumped up and them and full of vigor and all that stuff. And I had this guy in the dorm, and, and you know, you kind of go at each other a little bit, and Somehow one day we ended up challenging each other to a wrestling match. So we went out in the lawn of the dormitory and I figured, you know, I can take this guy in no time. I mean, you know, he just wasn't that big and, and didn't seem to be that strong. Well, man, we locked up and he was pushing this way and I was pushing against him and I was trying to turn him and he was trying to turn me. Now, if you'd just been looking at us from a distance, you'd say, those guys were just standing there. But let me tell you, it wore me out standing there. 
It didn't take long at all. I was slap dreamed. Just that pushing and pulling and constant exertion. Paul says when he looked back over his life, he saw his ministry, he said, man, it was a wrestling match. It was extreme exertion. It was tiring. There was constant opposition of Satan and people. But Paul had no regrets. He had fought the good fight by the power of Christ in him. When you look back over your Christian life, your Christian service, and see it as a wrestling match, expect hardships and trials and difficulties and struggles. Expect to become tired. Expect to become weary and exhausted. It is a battle. It's a contest between the kingdom of God and the domain of darkness. Expect it to be hard. I get irritated with preachers who complain about problems in their church. I say, grow up, man. What do you expect? I've never had a church that didn't have problems. And you never will. Because it's a wrestling match. It's a boxing bout. A Christian professor in a college, Christian college, and his son went on a thousand mile backpacking trip from British Columbia all the way down to Southern California. And they traveled over mountains, the mountains of, of Washington and Oregon and California, many times camping out above the 10,000 foot line. They experienced very, various hardships, a lack of water and food, danger from wild animals, days of rain and mud, extreme physical exhaustion, not to speak of loneliness and blisters and mosquitoes and extremes of heat and cold. But before leaving on this trip, this Christian professor did some research. He found out that 90% of the people who Plan to take a hike of more than 500 miles never completed. 50% of those who plan to take it never start. 40% start, but they quit after they start. Only 10% go the whole distance when it's 500 miles or more. After studying that 10% that succeeded, he came to certain conclusions. Now, some of it involved strenuous training and meticulous logistical preparations. But those were not the deciding factor. He discovered those who succeeded versus those who failed understood that the biggest block was mental. That the biggest enemy was not outside, but inside. And those who succeeded made two important decisions before they left. First, they decided that they were not going to quit, but they were going to finish no matter what. Secondly, they expected bad things to happen. And they determined when those bad things happened, they would not get discouraged or be dismayed. And so when the rains came and turned the trail into quagmire, they didn't quit. They expected it. When a black cloud of mosquitoes descended like some Old Testament plague, 
They didn't quit. They didn't get discouraged. They expected it. When they faced days of loneliness and nights of hunger, they didn't quit because they knew it would be like this. In essence, the successful backpackers had a certain mindset. They knew that the key was putting one foot in front of the other. You take a step and you hit the mud. You take another step and you see a bear. You take another step and your legs begin to cramp. You take another step and crazy people come out of the woods. But it doesn't matter because you expected crazy people to come out of the woods. You just didn't know when. And so they expected problems. And so when problems came, they were not surprised. Now the same thing can be said about your Christian ministry, your Christian service. Whether it's teaching Sunday school, whether it's working in vacation Bible school, whether it's working in the nursery, whether it's working with the puppets, whatever it is. You can expect bad things to happen. You can expect things to go wrong. You can expect people to get upset. You can expect things not to go as you planned. But you don't quit. Because you've made up your mind by the grace of God, you will not give up. You will not quit. And when you, your Christian life flashes before your eyes, you will see it as a fight well fought. Because you fought by the Bible, God's rules. You fought by the power of the Holy Spirit. And you did not quit or give up. When your life flashes before your eyes, will you see your life next as completing a race? Paul says again in verse 7, I have finished the course. Here he is going to the Olympic Games and the races of the Olympics. He sees himself as a runner who has successfully run the race and crossed the finish line. He did not give up. He did not quit. He persevered to the end. Like every good runner, Paul kept his eyes on the finish line, which was his God-given ministry. When Paul was on his way to Jerusalem for that last time, he was eventually arrested, ended up in Rome before Caesar. But on his way to Jerusalem, he met with the elders of Ephesus. And you might say he knew he would never see them again, and so he was giving them his farewell address. He picks up on this same metaphor of the race. Listen to what he says in Acts 20, beginning with verse 22. And now behold, bound by the Spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I might finish my course in my ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Paul's earnest desire was to finish the race that God had given him. He says, even if it costs my life, that's okay. Remember, his life was a sacrifice to God. He said, I just want to finish the race. And Paul knew that God would enable him to finish that race because he wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 1, For this reason I also suffer these things, that I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that He's able to guard what I have entrusted to Him. Until that day. 
And what he had entrusted to him was his ministry. As Paul was in prison and his life flashes before his eyes, he sees it as a race that has been successfully completed. I have finished the course. When your life flashes before your eyes, will you see it as a race successfully finished? You've heard me say that the Christian life is like a marathon race. Not only a marathon race, but an obstacle marathon race. Because it's not just clear sailing. There are struggles and obstacles and hurdles all along the way. Difficulties and such as loss of a loved one or loss of a job or financial pressures or sickness or heartaches or disappointments. At times... You might be tempted to quit and just set aside and get off the track and fall by the wayside and drop out of the race. But we must keep going, fulfilling God's call on our lives. So when your life flashes before your eyes, will you see it as a race successfully completed? Will you be able to say, I have finished the course? John the Penguin Bingo. It's a name that if you are serious about running, you will recognize. He is not only a marathon runner, but he trains and motivates others to run marathon races. His secret is this. He said, when I stand at the starting line, I know that out there somewhere is a finishing line. We all have a finishing line out there somewhere. And we don't know when that finishing line is going to come. But it's out there. And will you continue the race, continue to run, until you cross the line? When you look back at your life, will you be able to say, it was a race successfully completed? Now the key to successfully completing it is keeping your eyes on Jesus. The writer of Hebrews picks up this same metaphor. When he says, let us run with endurance... The race that is set before us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame. And He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's how you continue to persevere. Not in your own strength, but keeping your eyes on Jesus. Next, when your life flashes before your eyes, will you see yourself as one who guarded a treasure? Paul says in verse 7, and kept the faith. Now this word kept the faith means to keep by guarding. It's an idea of a steward who is guarding his master's treasures. Paul had faithfully defended the truth of God's Word. That's what's meant by faith. It doesn't mean he continued to hold on and believe in Jesus. It means that he continued to hold on to the doctrines of the truth of God, the doctrines of the faith, the truth of God's Word. He guarded it as a treasure. Paul stood against those who would, who would water down the Word of God, who would compromise the Word of God, and he said, no, the truth of God's gospel stands. He said, if anyone else preaches a gospel other than that which you've heard from me, let him be accursed. Let him be damned is what Paul is saying. Let him go to hell is what Paul is saying. He says, I've defended, I have guarded the truth of God's Word. You and I, as we look at our life, I hope we can say we have guarded the treasure of God's Word. 
If ever there was a time that we needed to do so, it is a time in which we live. A time in which that which is sin is called right, and that which is right is called sin. Homosexuality is, is said to be right. It's okay. And those who stand against it are called bigots, are called sinners. The same thing for immorality. Immorality is said to be okay. But those who stand against immorality are said to be bigots, narrow-minded, sin. You and I must stand for the truth of God's Word. Even if nobody else stands, we must stand and hold up the standard of God's truth. We must not shy away from speaking the truth in love. Proclaim the Bible as God's absolute truth. His eternal truth that does not change according to the whims of the culture. It won't be politically correct, but who cares? Let's be biblically correct. So when your life flashes before your eyes, will you see it? That you have guarded the treasure faithfully of God's Word. That you've not given in and compromised to society to try to make it more acceptable. To shave off the sharp edges of God's Word to make it more palatable. But you have stood for the truth. And have not wavered, not gone to the left or to the right. But you've held up God's Word as the standard of what is right and what is wrong. Lastly, when Paul's life flashed before his eyes, he saw his coming death, his life after death, as a victory celebration. Will you see that life after your death as a victory celebration? Look at verse 8. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only me, but also to all who loved His appearing. Here Paul has the Olympic victory celebration in mind. When the winner is awarded the victor's crown. I still get chill bumps every time when I'm watching the Olympics and an American has won the gold medal. And he or she takes their position on the highest block. And the Olympic official puts the gold medal around their neck. And they start to play the national anthem. And the American flag is raised. Man, I get chills. Now, you've heard me say before, I love to win. I am just competitive. I can't help it. I hate to lose. But I love to win. There's nothing quite like a victory celebration. Now, we've all had opportunities to be on part of a team or as a player or as a spectator. And man, we have won the big game. And you know you just want to dance, you want to jump around, you're just happy because you won. There's just something about winning that just sends thrills throughout your body. Paul says when he looks at his life after death, what he sees is a victory celebration. He sees it as a time of shouting. I mean, you've trained hard, you've competed vigorously, you have persevered to the end, and you've finally won the victory. It's time to celebrate. And it's going to be one celebration when we get to heaven, folks. Man, we have fought the good fight. We have finished the race. We've guarded the treasure. We have loved Jesus appearing. And we are going to celebrate and celebrate throughout eternity. When your life flashes before your eyes and you know death 
is imminent. Will you see that death as a victory celebration? In 1904, William Borden of the Borden Dairy family, Borden's Ice Cream, Borden's Milk, graduated from high school in Chicago. And his family sent him on a world cruise as a graduation present. As he was over in the Near East and the Far East, he became very burdened for the people there. And so when he came back, he announced to his family that he was going to go to the mission field. So he enrolled at Princeton University to do his undergraduate work. And then he continued at Princeton for the three years doing his seminary. While he was at Princeton, he wrote in the back of his Bible, no reserves. When he graduated from seminary and told his family of his plans to go to the mission field, they desperately tried to dissuade him from going. They said, the family business is is floundering and we need you to stay here and run the family business. But he felt the greater priority and higher calling was to go to the mission field. And so he disposed of his wealth and headed for the mission field. And he opened up the back of his Bible and to no reserves, he added, no retreat. As he was on his way to China... To witness to the Muslims there, he contracted cerebral meningitis while he was in Egypt. A month later, he died. After his death, someone was looking at his Bible. And they turned it over to the back on the inside. And he had added two words to those words he'd already written. No regrets. No reserves. No retreat, no regrets. When your life comes to its conclusion, will it be said of you and will you be able to say it of your life? No reserves, no retreat, no regrets. Let's pray. Father, we don't like to think about that day that we'll cross over. But it's coming for all of us. That finish line is out there. But as we think about it now, show us. Show us what we need to do so that when that day comes and our life flashes before our eyes, we can say with Paul, we've lived as a sacrifice, that we have fought the good fight, we've finished the race, we've kept the faith, And we're looking forward to the victory celebration. In Jesus' name, Amen. I would encourage you to just take your notes today and just go through each of those images and say, Lord, will I be able to say this when my time comes? And if the answer is no, then say, Lord, what what do I need to do to change this? And I'm looking to You to enable me to do what I need to do so that I can see my life as a sacrifice. So I will completely the course. So I will fight the good fight. He'll show you. And then by His grace, be obedient to that call.